welcome back to Millennial Ag, where agriculture is always on tap and no topic is off limits. Thanks for joining us today, your co-hosts, Valine Likely and Catherine Lotspeech. Listeners, welcome back to this week's episode. I think we're on 93 or 94, but we're, we're knocking <laughs> on episode 100 and I can't count lately, let alone make sentences. So if I start babbling, that's, that's what's going on. Um, but this week we're um, diving into kind of the beef industry with um, a special guest from the University of Idaho and somebody who's who's done a lot of research and is an expert in this field. So before we get too far in, I'll let Dr. Phil Bass um, introduce himself and a little bit about what he's been up to lately. Yeah, sure. So uh, thanks for having me. Um, it's it's always a pleasure to be able to share my perspective on things and share a little bit about what we're doing here at the University of Idaho. Um, it's uh, it's an honor to be a part of the University of Idaho. We have we have a, a great ag program here and especially in the animal sciences, a great team to work with. And so um, it's a pleasure to be a, a part of all that as well. A um, little background on on myself. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm originally a California native. I grew up on the very north coast of California in dairy and beef cattle country. Um, if you weren't milking cows or, or running beef cattle, you were a logger. And um, I guess I wasn't very good at logging. And so I kind of stuck with the animal side of things. I um, uh, did my undergrad and master's work at Cal Poly in San Luis Obispo. And, uh, and how about that? I know. <laughs> 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 and uh, and uh, um, uh, in, in animal science, in meat science, um, and uh, progressed to uh, my PhD at Colorado State University. And so a little connection oh, with the millennial <laughs> ag uh, team here. Um, uh, after, after Colorado State, um, I needed a job. And uh, in 2009, uh, for those who recall 2009, um, that was not a good time to be looking for a job. Um, however, I was very fortunate um, to land a job with Certified Angus Beef um, at their headquarters in Worcester, Ohio. And so I was part of, I was a branch of the American Angus Association for eight and a half years um, and made one of the biggest, um, uh, hardest decisions of my life. Um, and that was to leave Certified Angus Beef, but to come to the University of Idaho, where um, I've continued to pursue um, uh, research that's near and dear to my heart that continues to hopefully benefit the beef community, the meat science community in general, but the beef community especially, and which is very strong in the state of Idaho. And, um, and, and that's, that's where my research focuses on adding value to beef in general, um, more so on the post-harvest side, but anytime that I can talk with producers about um, uh, bringing value to their, to their live animal, um, I do so as well, so. Very good, welcome to the show, and um, it's funny how those connections get made. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> even funnier that we have connections with both of us, so um, yeah, just go Aggies all the way around. <laughs> <laughs> So tell us, Dr. Bass, what research projects do you have going on right now and how did you happen to choose them? So um, being more in the academic world, I do get a chance to focus on areas that I have a lot of passion and, and I'm grateful for the support that I've been able to receive through the beef checkoff, um, both state and federal. Um, and, and some of that research um, has to do, we, we have a couple different directions that we're going. Um, some of it has to do with the size of cattle that we're looking at right now. And there's no question that finished beef 
um, are bigger than they have ever been in the packing house. And, and that's a testament to um, improvements in genetics and efficiencies in management. But when it comes to the meat side of things, we have to look at that carcass in a bit of a different way. It impacts the packing house itself, the facilities itself, in a way where we have to maybe modify infrastructure. We have to look at fabrication a different way to be able to merchandise this meat. Um, and, and that's something for any of the producers that are out there, young and old, please remember that if you're raising livestock in any form or fashion, they are producing a product. It's not just the animal itself. It is a product, ultimately. Dairy producers out there, of course, you have to focus on the milk product that is being produced. On our side, we're, we're, we have to remember that there's meat being produced. I, and, and not to get too far off topic, and forgive me for this, but I've been telling an awful lot of folks this little story. I was giving a talk to a local 4-H group, and I asked the 4-Hers, in the audience, what is it that you guys are, are producing? What are you growing? And an 11 year old girl raised her hand and just about knocked me off my feet when she says meat. And I congratulated her because there's a lot of producers that forget that side and, and by no fault of their own, because they're focusing so, so much on the live animal efficiency and production, but we have to sell that ultimate product to keep the consumer pull through going on. And that's, that's what we're trying to do here at the university of Idaho, as well as many other great meat science institutions out there. Um, uh, here we're, we're really focusing on those carcass sizing attributes, looking at different fabrication methods, chilling methods, um, ways that we can continue to maintain that high quality product once it is harvested. Um, and then we're going even further than that. And I don't know if you guys are familiar with the term dry age. You guys familiar with dry age beef? We uh, are. Yep. But um, maybe we can define it for our listeners. Absolutely. So, so for those out there, um, dry age beef is, is the majority of meat is sold in the United States and in industrialized countries is what's called wet aged. From the packing house, the meat goes into a vacuum bag and it's transported and aged in that vacuum bag. And that vacuum bag does a lot of great things. It's a synthetic barrier around the product. Um, it maintains yield because there's no moisture loss, really. Um, and it, it and extends the shelf life tremendously because there's no oxygen interacting with the product at all. Um, it pre creates a very consistent product. And we like to age beef to allow the natural enzymes in the meat to break down the muscle fibers and it makes it more tender. But in wet aged, there are some differences as far as flavor attributes and added um, uh, 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 flavor experiences that cannot be achieved compared to what's called dry aging. And dry aging, it, this is one of those, um, what's old is new and what's new is cool concepts, okay? This is something that we, this was the standard mode of merchandising beef up until the 1970s. Meat was hung in a cooler. Carcasses were hung in a cooler. The chunks, the pieces, what we call primals, were cut off, and they just were still held at in, in open air. Um, now, still in refrigerated environment, but open air. And so what happens is natural evaporation occurs. The flavors of the meat itself are concentrated because the water is evaporating slowly. And on the outsides, you do get 
some microbial interaction, in many cases, molds. And I'll get to, I'll get to that. Don't get turned off by molds <laughs> growing on me. I know, right? Crazy. But I'm, I get excited about this kind of stuff. But up until the 1970s, that was just how it was always done. Here comes, enter in this amazing technology vacuum packaging in 1970s. And, and it, it went across the industry and, and has become this very standard procedure um, up until more recently when folks are kind of looking at, well, beef is great and we continue to make it better as far as flavors and marbling and things like that. But if we kind of look at this older mechanism of what's called dry aging and literally you just leave the meat in that open air environment in refrigeration. Keep that in mind. That's still very, very critical for safety. Um, but that, again, it allows for flavor developments to occur. Sometimes they're very robust flavors. Um, and and what, we're, what I'm finding is a lot of folks are looking for some of these more strong, um, uh, uh, bold flavors, um, especially the millennial crowds. Um, and, 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 and we're getting a lot of pull-through demand. It's a value-added proposition. Um, it costs money to do this because you're holding up inventory. You're evaporating away moisture, which we sell meat by the pound. But ultimately, you're creating a different eating experience that is sometimes hard to recreate. And that's what we're trying to understand better in the research that we're doing. So on the dry-aged... Um... Can you, you mentioned mold. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Can you just touch on, cause to me, it's, I, I think I understand it in the sense that like even blue cheese is slightly, you know, molded or you get those enzymes and those bacteria or whatever the science is behind that. But can you maybe dive into that a little bit um, from a food safety point of view? Absolutely. Oh my gosh. So, so on the dry aging side, and you mentioned food safety, and, and let's address that first and foremost, because if it's not safe, you can't, you can't experience the added flavors that come about, right? It, you, you just can't. You shouldn't eat it if it's not safe. So first and foremost, it's, very, it's actually very safe. There's been quite a bit of research conducted to validate the safety of dry aging. Um, but as long as it's maintained in a refrigerated environment, we're at less than 40 degrees Fahrenheit, um, we're, we're preventing any um, growth of known pathogenic bacteria, E. coli, salmonella, the like. Okay, um, so, so that's covered. But the other cool thing about dry aging is that we're intentionally drying the outside surface of the meat and the really bad bacteria like E. coli and salmonella need a lot of moisture to survive. And so actually, if they, as they do studies to look at food safety on dry age product, they really can't even find these things because it's, it's so safe. The surface has dried of, of the meat. Now, the consequence of that is that there's still these things called the, in the fungal kingdom called molds that can survive in that drier surface. And, and so they propagate. And like you've already mentioned, we use microbes all the time in food production. Okay. Think about the dairy community and you can, you yogurt, cheese, none of that would exist if we didn't use the microbes um, uh, intentionally to produce that product. Now we're looking at it in a little bit different light on the meat side. And we have produced meat that is extremely clean, extremely safe, um, and extremely consistent. And what we're finding too now is we can 
find some um, some great eating attributes if we do allow for natural molds that are floating around in the air. You're breathing them right now. <gasps> I know, scary, right? But it, it's it, natural molds in the in these native environments that set up shop on this dry aged product, and it creates kind of a very unique flavor to the region. And that's what we're seeing in some of the research is that different locations throughout the country actually have kind of their own fingerprint of mold populations, of bacterial almost like, populations. Almost like, um, is it ter terroir? terroir? Terroir. Oh my gosh. Yes. <laughs> Isn't that exciting? So yes. So terroir. And for those who are, who are outside of the viticulture world, terroir is exactly the term that, that I used to describe dry age in comparison to wine. And wines that will develop their own very unique environmental flavor because of the climate, the soil, and what we're also finding the native microbes in those areas will influence that overall experience. Interesting. It's almost cool? like each region could have its own kind of craft flavor yes. of beef. Isn't that exciting? That's very exciting. That's awesome. <laughs> so, so, so the, and what we're finding, however, and, and, and dry age, dry aging is still in its infancy as far as what we understand about it. And that's what we're trying to do the research on it. Um, because this, this is, this is a great explanation of what research is. You search and then you research. And, <laughs> and so we're, we're, we're finding more questions than answers in many cases. And that's okay. Um, because it's leading us down paths that we need to go. At first we were just searching in the dark and now we have a good idea of specific types of molds that do like a dry aged beef environment, a cold um, protein rich environment, um, semi-dry, um, but they are unique populations. And, and like you said, you can, you can have that kind of craft flavor in different locations. And it's really hard to duplicate, actually. The individual microbe populations in that environment like that environment. And if you pick them up, if you pick up the, the microbes here in Moscow and try to plant them in Twin Falls, they, they don't like that. And you won't get exactly the same flavor. But what we have so long focused on with this idea of consistency, I think it's time we celebrate the differences of the flavors and and anybody who who enjoys craft beers or um wine tasting like like you've mentioned we do celebrate those differences i think That's it's me. interesting to go back to your comment from a few minutes ago you said that we have an incredibly clean um and consistent supply of beef and that's great from a food safety standpoint um but from a from a human enjoyment standpoint um, I think maybe what you're describing is more, more exciting. And um, it's, it's almost like, you know, grocery store tomatoes just are never as good as the tomatoes you grow in your own garden. Right. right. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Um, to have more of a unique background in going into that product and to really give it um, some personality, I guess, um, on a plate, I think is yeah. a really, really interesting statement. Well, and, it, and there's no question that um, traditionally wet-aged beef is still 
widely accepted. And, and in fact, our consumer studies under blind circumstances, we didn't tell them what they were, what they were trying. Um, our, our North Idaho palette um, of consumers actually in, in most cases preferred the wet aged product, mm. but it kind of depends on who is sampling that product. Okay? Sure. So if you, if you put that in, in the, in front of a chef in a large metropolitan area that is familiar with dry aging, they're actually going to have that more preference or that's the hypothesis anyway, they're going to have that preference toward those stronger, bolder flavors that come from dry aging. Um, where we are here in, in North Idaho, we have, we have a very blue collar background up here and, and most folks haven't really had the opportunity to try a variety of dry age products. Whereas um, in my previous occupation, um, working in the beef industry more specifically, um, there's definitely interest in having those stronger, bolder flavors. So it's almost, it's kind of like, I'm going to refer to like my college age when I, you know, drank the cheap cheap $2 bottles of wine that I could find and the sweetest thing. <laughs> yeah. And then as I've grown older or, or been able to taste more, my palate's been a little refined. You're kind of explaining the same thing about the dry aged beef, like the, you know, adapting and understanding the different, different flavors. Cause I think I've had maybe one dry aged steak and it, it was fine, but it didn't, mm. I didn't have that big burst of flavor that I was used to having with the wet age. And I'm, mm -hmm. I don't know if there's different ways of, of dry, dry aging too, you know, just the steak or is it the whole cut? How I'm guessing that might play into it too and how they prepared it. Um, but just like, this makes me want to have a tape blind taste yeah. test and try all these different pieces to see, see what's available there. So, and you bring up a lot of great points. Like there's so many variables and <clears throat> what we've, what we did was we took the most consistent variable or the, the, the most consistent approach, which is just bone in uh, strip steaks, um, uh, modest and higher marbling for those. I don't know if, if those out there listening, if you're familiar with the marbling levels in um, in beef, we have, Prime choice select, <clears throat> prime being the very top, select being kind of the more um, the the more um, value centric, if we would say it. Um, prime having the most amount of marbling, that's a little flex of fat in the meat. <clears throat> um, select having the least out of those three categories. Modest and higher meaning we're in the middle of the middle range, which is choice. Anyway, um, using those those products to try to maintain some consistency. Um, we, in, in this, in this uh, particular study that we're talking about, we sent the product out to individual um, regional locations, um, commercial operations, had them just use their standard SOP um, for dry aging for 45 days, which is kind of that, that sweet spot for if we're going to get microbial growth on the product, which we were trying to do, um, we're going to see it in 45 days. If we're not going to see it, then it's, you, you can go 60 days, 100 days, whatever. Um, you're probably not going to get much more benefit out of it. And that's been my experience um, over time too, um, more anecdotally, but observationally in the industry, being in the industry, somewhere between that 45 and 60 days is kind of a sweet spot for dry aging um, for most of your middle meats, uh, ribeyes and strip loins. Um, 
there are some that can go longer. I've heard of some of these guys dry aging for a whole uh, hundred days, 300 days. At that point, I think you have just old meat. Um, I don't know if you're getting, I don't know if you're getting much more benefit out of it. Um, but, uh, you know, we have to think of the, the fiscal responsibility of these, of this product, this process as well. And by dry aging for a hundred days or so, you're holding up inventory for a very long time. I would say the very minimum being 28 days to get, to get substantial changes, but you say, uh, but, but you, you mentioned Valine, um, that, that, the, the product you had maybe didn't have that robust flavor like I'm explaining to you. And, and that's very true with some dry aging processes and it all comes down to what is the process. So what we've discovered is you having about 75% humidity and higher in the refrigeration environment allows for more, more of that mold growth to occur. And very specific types of molds, especially there's one, and, and hopefully this doesn't put too many people off, but there's one that was very prevalent called Mucor. And we need to get somebody from the marketing department to come over and help us rename this mold. But Mucor has actually been identified in Korean, South Korean studies who, who actually, that country does a lot of dry aging research, South Korean studies where they've inoculated with this Mucor and develop some very savory flavors from the beef. Now there's also some dry aging operations that prevent mold from occurring. And that creates a very um, uh, uh, consistent product, a better yielding product. They use UV lights, they'll use um, air filtration, very cold temperatures. And really all you're doing is evaporating the moisture that's there and kind of more just concentrating the wet aged beef flavor. The, to your point, and, and sorry for rambling, but to your point, dry aged beef flavors have an enormous spectrum. And I would tell folks that if you're in a large metropolitan area, say New York City, Houston, Atlanta, um, Las Vegas, try a dry aged product there. Um, and, and, and think about, um, it really, really, uh, take in the smells. The, that's what's called organoleptic um, properties. Smell the meat um, uh, and, and really savor it to get that full experience. But I'll tell you, it's a, it's a new dimension that you can get out of consuming beef. It's not just eating meat for sustenance. It's eating meat for entertainment and excitement now. So <laughs> what does the cost is obviously more, but what can you expect to pay for a dry aged steak? And are you going to find it mostly at like a restaurant or is it going to be, can you get it at Whole Foods or a specialty grocery store? Where, where do you typically find dry aged meat? Yeah, that, yeah. And that's a great question. How can you find this? And, and you're going to have to go to areas where the clientele are, are demanding it more so. And so that is going to be some of your larger metropolitan areas if you wanted to buy it in a, in a retail setting, in a grocery store setting. So yes, Whole Foods does tend to carry some, um, the variety and the variation of the product that you're going to get from Whole, Whole Foods is probably going to be larger because they don't necessarily look at grading per se compared to more, uh, traditional grocery stores. It's more of a management system that they're focusing on to, to acquire their product. And then they'll dry age from there. I'm, I, I, I would almost guarantee you're going to have a bold eating experience either way. 
Okay. It'll, it'll, it'll still give you that extra kick as you're saying. Um, otherwise, yeah. If you're, if you're going to a steakhouse and you see dry aging on the menu, that's probably going to be your most likely, um, opportunity to try it. Um, ask questions, um, because it is a more expensive item in a retail setting. You're probably going to be closer to upwards of 20, $25 a pound for something like this. So, um, you know, a, a good thick steak's going to be probably almost $30 for like a ribeye or, or a, or, or a, um, a, a T-bone or so. Um, and that's all dependent on all the other parameters, the characteristics, the, the grade, the, the length of time, et cetera. Um, in a restaurant, you'd probably have to expect to pay 40 to $50 for the steak. So it, it's a more costly eating experience. Um, but I always like to bring back to, uh, to, to the audiences that I'm, that I'm talking about this and anything else is who sets the price. You know, um, ultimately it's the consumers that are setting the price. <laughs> so, I mean, you, in demand. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, people are willing to pay for it. And, and that's where it comes down to. That's the exciting part that I want to give back to the ag community is that, um, yes, it's an expensive um, endeavor. Um, in many cases, it's kind of more of a luxury item in those really fancy steakhouse restaurants, but it doesn't mean you can't afford something like this and experience it yourself. Um, uh, uh, and, and just know that people are willing to pay for this. They, they, and they want that high quality beef and they want that unique eating experience. And especially beef just has a different dimension that many of the other species um, can't necessarily bring to the, to the flavor, to the table. So one other question on dry aged is you, you're talking about the high, high end products, you know, the loin, the sirloin T-bones. Do you see any dry age in some of the tougher cuts too, you, um, that you typically either put in pot roasts or make, you know, the skirt steaks, the mm -hmm. flank steaks, that sort of thing. Are you, are you dry aging those too, or are you sending those in a different path? So um, I've had the privilege to um, cut and eat my way through a side of beef more than once. Um, and one that's one that in, in fact has been aged for quite some time and had a chance to dry, have dry aged cuts from all over the carcass. And there are definitely some processors out there that are looking for those more value centric items, things that aren't necessarily going to be our very traditional steak items. So, so um, uh, the first one that comes to mind that's still kind of a traditional steak is the top sirloin. Um, it's, a, it's a much lower entry-level cost compared to a strip loin or a ribeye. Um, uh, but dry aging really can enhance the flavor on that one. Um, another one is the tri-tip. Um, so I'm, I'm a California native. Tri-tip is king in California. Tri-tip is to <laughs> California what brisket is to Texas. I mean, it's, it's, it's ubiquitous. And so that's one that has definitely been experimented with in the past as well and, and definitely enhances the flavors. Um, outside of that, you know, we do have some um, uh, meat purveyors that are dry aging a variety of different other large subprimals, um, but using them in an, in an application that would be different from a traditional steak. Um, there are some that are using whole briskets and whole, um, uh, um, round cuts, really big muscles, um, dry aging those for a time, trimming away any of the crust and mold or, or, or anything that's on the outside. And then using that as a ground beef, um, 
uh, base. And so you're getting the dry aged flavor in a much lower cost, more in a hamburger situation. Um, but I'm telling you, this is something that's really kind of taken off in some specific markets. And it, and, and again, it's, it's, it's bringing that unique boldness and flavor that you can get from dry aging, but to a much more affordable um, and approachable um, price point. So I guess on the um, ground beef side of things, it, it, like we, I guess our family always hangs the carcass in the cooler for 21 days, you know, cause that's, that's what we've done. And like you said, it was the historical thing. Mm -hmm. And so I guess our ground beef technically is, is dry aged a little bit too, but I didn't, you know, that the cliche or whatever, or the picture I paint in my mind is having all those separate pieces of meat or prime or and I'm not a meat scientist obviously but um those sections set out and and it makes sense to grind some of them for a higher end mm -hmm. um hamburger how does the moisture stay in there does does is the texture still still the same or does it end up breaking that down in a little different way as well yeah that's a really good consideration um so <clears throat> What's, what's really cool about beef muscle itself specifically is, is that after dry aging, even though we have lost moisture, it can still, there's still moisture bound in the muscle. Okay. And so in, in those cuts, but this is also an opportunity for me to bring in another topic that I'm very, very passionate about, and that's marbling. Okay. Um, and, and I've already mentioned marbling, but the little flecks of fat that the animal deposits in the muscle is so critical for flavor, tenderness, and juiciness. Now, if you're grinding it, it's not as critical for the tenderness part, but marbling, those little flecks of fat bring a ton of the flavor and the juiciness. And for a dry age product, I highly, highly recommend looking at higher marbled items, carcasses in general, because that, that those little flecks of fat um, if you go to the extent of grinding, um, will still maintain, help to maintain a lot more of that moisture. And that's the, the, ju the juiciness that's in there. Um, and, and, and then if you just consider the, the roasts and the steaks, it's going to help maintain juiciness as well. And so you're not so reliant on the water factor and, and that being the moisture and the juiciness you're, you're allowing for those, um, the natural fats that are in there. Um, to help with that juiciness. And so, um, yeah, what, what you're talking about, hanging the carcass for a little while, um, for 21 days, very common uh, for locker type, personal beef, custom beef like that. Um, and it's great because you're starting to uh, optimize the tenderness of the muscles that after that 21 days, you're going to get some dry aging effect. Um, in most um, commercial operations, they're going to be dragging the subprimals or the primals, like you're mentioning this, the, the, the smaller chunks off of the carcass. <laughs> and that, that, in, that allows for um, a bit more of a rapid dry aging to occur because it's increasing surface area. Um, uh, and let's be honest, most, um, most meat shops anymore, they don't, they don't have whole carcasses coming through carcasses are broken down at the packing house and then the pieces are shipped out from there. It's an efficiency thing. It just makes more sense. Um, so, so that's kind of the, the, the approach of things. Your question was more on, on the juiciness and, and, you know, that's where I applaud the K 
cattle producers in this country, they, uh, there has been a huge focus on quality, meaning higher marbled cattle. And that's going to continue to bring people back to the table. People like that marbling and they're willing to pay for it. Yeah. And I, I love juicy marble and my, my mouth's watering. <laughs> so I think that might be a great place to, to start wrapping up. Yeah. Um, we thank you, Dr. Bass, for coming on. You had mentioned you had a podcast before we got started. So do you yeah. want to tell listeners what your podcast is and then where they can find you in the podcast? Yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah. And I, thank you for that opportunity. Um, so I am partnered with um, Dr. Francisco Nahar, um, who, who uh, started the Meats Pad, um, M-E-A-T-S-P-A-D, Meats Pad podcast. And this is a meat science centric podcast focused more on um, medium to small processors. Um, but really, the, the the audience is really unlimited. Anybody that has any meat, meat interest. Um, it's not necessarily a hot topics discussion. It's, it's a lot more of topics that are going to um, help a meat processor now or three years from now if they want to listen to it. Um, and it's a variety of topics. We, we cover everything from animal welfare to quality uh, assurance to food safety, um, uh, ingredients, um, and, and packaging a little everything. Um, you can find it at meatspad.com. Um, and, um, you know, check it out. It's, it's easy listening and, and it's just kind of fun conversations like we're having right here. Awesome. Well, again, thank you for joining us. And we thank you listeners for tuning into this week's episode of the millennial ag podcast. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You can also email us at talk to us at millennialag.com. And until next week, we are millennial ag.